Okay, and welcome back to the Veterans Beyond the Wire podcast. I am Tim Keller. Along with me is the co-host, Matthew Disher. And this week, we have a fantastic guest. His name is Bart Cole, a United States Marine Corps veteran who has been awarded the Bronze Star, and we will bring him on here in a minute. But today marks the 19th anniversary of the attacks on September 11th, 2001, a day that anyone that was a certain age will never forget. I know that Matt, myself, Bart also at this time, we're all serving in the Marine Corps. This is also a day that spurred countless others to join the military. But the military has Veterans Day. It has Memorial Day. In my opinion, I think September 11th and Patriots Day is a day we, we think about the first responders. So on this day, 19 years ago, at 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 struck the North Tower in New York City. At 9.03 a.m., United Airlines Flight 175 struck the South Tower in New York City. 9.37 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77 strikes the Pentagon building just outside Washington, D.C. 9.55 a.m., the South Tower collapses. 10.03 a.m., United Airlines Flight 93 crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And then finally, at 10.28 a.m., the North Tower of the World Trade Center collapsed. This is a day that thousands of individuals were arriving to their jobs at these places, the Pentagon, the World Trade Center. This is the day that people boarded flights, traveling, to go on vacation, to go visit family, to a thousand other countless things. And their lives changed forever, and some lives ended. The official count is 2,977 individuals lost their lives these days, on this day. But let's talk about these first responders for a minute. Individuals that at one point had gone to a fire academy or a police academy looking to have a career and possibly help their communities along the way had to respond to these attacks and face what I can't even begin to imagine levels of fear. The smoke, the fire, they are attempting to run into buildings into towers with thousands of stairs while these staircases are flooded with thousands of individuals attempting to move in the opposite direction. So while that 2,977 number is not a number to try to downplay, no one knows what that number would have been if it would not have been for these first responders. So I want to say thank you to all the first responders that acted that day. And thank you for everything you continue to do beyond that day. So at this time, Mr. Bart Cole, how are you, sir? How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm alive and upright. There you go. There you go. So we wanted to bring you on. Um, as I mentioned in the open, Marine Corps veteran, Bronze Star, you were awarded that Bronze Star for your actions as our response post-September 11th. 
but let's kind of talk about this day. Um, where was everybody at? What was everybody doing? You know, it's it, it's interesting. Bart and I were on a ship together. We uh, we go way back. We were uh, we were kids together, I think. And uh, I think the first time I met Bart, uh, we were in we were in the barracks at uh, probably the Fifth Marine Barracks, or maybe before that. It was those those old buildings that are no longer there. First Combat Engineer Battalion. Um, and uh, you know, I was probably a nineteen year old kid. And at the time, we were working up to the float that would ultimately end up uh, the float we were on. We were coming back from when the towers came down. But, uh, you know, Bart and I served alongside of each other uh, when we were attached to uh, Fox Company 2-1, 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, uh, which was an amphibious raider company. So we had this amazing opportunity to do some 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 really cool training when we were uh, probably not even legally able to have beers. And... Uh, you know, for me, at least, I remember that morning I was listening to a CD on my little Walkman CD thing. And I know a lot of younger people might not uh, remember what that is, listening to CDs on your headphones. We're on the USS Harper's Ferry, uh, the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit. And my CD uh, started skipping. And so I stopped the, the track and I opened it up to blow off the CD. And right then the 1MC, the intercom system in the ship came on. And it was the captain telling us that we needed to go to general quarters and that uh, there has been an attack of some sort. And I forget exactly how, Bart, you might remember this. I forget exactly how they worded it, but I, I honestly thought it was a training exercise. I thought it was a joke. And, um, you know, we're out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean coming back from the Middle East. Uh, and, and we didn't have the news. So we couldn't watch this on the news. We couldn't see it happening in real time. So I don't know, Bart, any, any color to add there? So, uh, that would have happened really early in the morning for us. And it would have been around three in the morning, I believe mm -hmm. started happening. And, um, I don't remember some of it. And then, but I do remember the one MC, uh, dish. He was probably up, uh, listening to tool or something. I think yeah. it was, yes. it was tool. See, <laughs> so, uh, he slept, uh, above me three racks. Yeah. You were on the bottom, weren't you? Yeah. Yep. I was up on top. So, um, anyway, I just remember we all kind of didn't know what was going on. We'd had a few, uh, kind of false, uh, or, or maybe a wording of attacks and stuff that it came to us or uh, high alert status before. And we kind of just kind of blew it off. And then when somebody said a plane had flown into the buildings, we, um, initially kind of thinking Cessna or something, a small plane. Yeah. And, uh, I recall they, I think it was the chow hall where they, it was a small chow hall and they moved us through and they played videos on these TVs that weren't very big. And, um, that's when you saw what had happened and mm -hmm. uh, shocking cause you couldn't really see it. And then, and then they, uh, we were allowed to call home and I think we could send an email where we had to do it fast because they shut down and the whole ship went dark and we had already turned around and we headed we were heading east towards home and we actually turned around and headed west past Hawaii and we could pick up radio, um, regular radio signals. I remember all the guys, there's certain areas on ship where you can smoke. And at that time, everybody was sitting around in the well deck smoking and listening to somebody's boom box with something else that I don't know if some of the younger guys are going to remember, but, uh, we're listening right. and everybody's trying to be really quiet and everybody's smoking Navy, Marines, 
And I remember after that, we went out and um, we picked up some Tiger Cruise guys. So it was some brothers and fathers um, in Hawaii. And we picked them up. We're going to take them back to California with us. Kind of, um, I don't even know if they do that anymore, but it was pretty cool. I thought it was, it was neat. And Ian's, remember his brother and his father were with us. Mm-hmm. So one of our, one of our Marines, uh, in our squad was with us. <clears throat> his family was. And, uh, I went out to the, the railing and I remember seeing his father, uh, kind of just looking super sad and turned and looked around when I, when I got next to him and he just had tears going down his face mm-hmm. and kind of put everything together because Ian's father had been a Navy corpsman in Vietnam attached to the Marines. And out of all the people on that ship, probably he understood the depth and gravity of what was about to happen. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, That sticks in my heart forever. Yeah. Yeah. I I know personally, I was also in Pendleton at the time, uh, was working up to go to operation bright star. Um, in Egypt. Yep. We were, we were slated to leave. Um, I, I want to say November, late October, sometime like that. Um, but we showed up for PT that morning and, uh, they essentially told us like, Hey, we, we understand not everybody, uh, in the barracks has cable because you don't have a lot of money when you're in, when you're in the Marine Corps back in these days. And, uh, people found other things to spend their money on other than, than cable TV. But they yeah. said, go back to the barracks, find a room that has cable. And essentially just turn the TV on. I mean, it was on every every station everywhere, but just uh, find yourself in NBC, CBS. Um, so a bunch of us piled into these rooms. We turned the TVs on. Um, and we I remember walking in the room, the TV's already on. And maybe 45 seconds later, the second plane hit the second tower. And at the time, I remember nobody having any sort of answers. These people on these nationally televised morning news stations who give you you some serious news. They try to keep things upbeat, lighthearted. These, these are normally the news broadcasts where you find some of these heartfelt stories, make you feel good about the world around you. All of a sudden we're, we're guessing saying, we think it could be this. We think it could be that this is what we're hearing. And they were just trying to bring us the news at, at a at a pace that had never been done before, um, with almost no information for them, and everybody with the same questions. I remember in my time in the service, it's the first time that I felt real fear. Like I, I for about 20, 30 minutes. I was I was scared. I thought this is this is it. This is going to kick it off. Um, after those twenty to thirty minutes passed, and looking around the room and realizing everybody else um, kind of felt the same way, and we all kind of looked at each other, and I think collectively we all decided, all right, somebody did it. We're going to figure out who it was, and now it's time to go to work. This is yeah. this is exactly why we're here. All right. You wanted to come knocking on the door. You're not going to like who answers. Right. Let's go. Um, yeah. But yeah, that that was the first time. I was probably in it about two, two and a half years at this point. That was the first time that I remember thinking. Ah, this could be the reason I'm going to 
I'm going to end up, you know, in a casket somewhere. But obviously that didn't happen. You know, something interesting in, in Bart, you probably remember some of this, but it, it is my recollection that when we were out on our float just prior to 9-11, and this was, you know, bear in mind, this is after the USS Cole bombing that occurred where that uh, that speedboat ran, you know, boat full of explosives into the side of a, a U.S. ship. We were getting harassed, um, what felt like on a daily basis when we were out at sea and, and getting harassed in our um, respective training areas. And in fact, we canceled uh, a training operation in Jordan on our way in uh, because there was some sort of, I don't know if you remember the circumstances, some sort of uncovering of a potential attack on us or something like that. So the the Intel wire was hot at that point. Something was happening. Something was going on. They just didn't know where and when. And then boom, World Trade Center, Pentagon get hit on 9-11-2001. And I think some of us were kind of like, you know, in shock for a second. But then after that, we were like, oh, it all makes sense. All of these things that were happening, they were all decoys. They were all, let's do it somewhere else and make them think it's going to happen somewhere else. And I don't know if that became the standard for that part of the world, just harass the American troops that are passing through. But I don't know, Bart, any, do, do, you, do you have any recollection of, of those things that were happening? Do you remember that as I do? 100%. Um, talking about the USS Cole bombing in uh, Yemen that happened before us, just uh, immediately before us. We we're on high alert through the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, and then we ended up having, uh, we went into Jordan uh, that Matt's talking about, and we actually unloaded the whole ship with all of our training. We're going to be out for a few weeks uh, with all of our training gear, ammunition, and uh, we, we'd taken off all of our ship's gear and the Navy had even left. They came back and we turned around, literally did a U-turn on this big highway, like an interstate, with everybody, the whole battalion landing team. And we went back and loaded every single piece of gear within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. I guess we didn't unload in 24 hours. We loaded everything up and we, were, we had uh, snipers up in towers. We had uh, divers checking the ships. And we had LAVs that had loaded onto the uh, hovercraft, the uh, LCACs, and were loaded up. And then we zipped out of there. And it was uh, unheard of, I guess, at that time. Yeah. And then we debriefed later on. You remember the uh, man with the goatee that debriefed us down in the hold of the ship? Yeah. This guy ends up being CIA. And mm-hmm. he's, yeah. he's talking about all this chatter that had been going on about uh, large craters that they'd found out in the desert. And they chatter about... Uh, something about car bomb attacks. And at the time, our security element literally consisted of each person on the bus or whatever vehicle you were in. Uh, they weren't necessarily armed with rounds. They didn't have ammunition. We had like, remember the safety guy would have like 10 rounds in a magazine. They're all like bent up bullets, you know? And that's what, that's what it consisted of at the time. Yeah. Oh, it was stupid too, but. Things change rapidly. Oh, was, uh, yeah, I remember we, we got on those buses and, and we had to turn do that that quick U-turn in Jordan. And they're like, hey, everybody put on your uh, your flax and Kevlar. So I put on your body armor for, for anybody listening. We had to put on our body armor. And suddenly, you know, I think half of us were kind of like, OK, we're sleeping on the floor of the bus. What Marines do? We just mm-hmm. fall asleep wherever we're sitting for more than five minutes. And so we didn't take it seriously. But then I recall looking out that window and I'm thinking to myself, like, it was very limited information looking out the window of the bus while we're walking, while we're driving down the highway back to the ships. And we had a security element with uh, some of the Jordanian police were alongside of us. And I'm like, and th- like, there's this huge convoy of us troops rolling down this highway in Jordan in the middle of nowhere. And 
any of these minivans or station wagons that are rolling past us could be, you know, I mean, the eventuality of it is anybody who served in, in Iraq, especially um, every vehicle then became a threat. This is before that. So it was, I imagine even being frightened at that moment prior to 9-11, um, leading up to what happens, you know, a few years later. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was such a strange time, such a, a, a very strange time. And, and everything made sense after that. And then of course, and of course, we lead into the the, the events thereafter, um, uh, a conflict in Afghanistan, and then a couple of years later, conflict in Iraq. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And since that day, we've continued these conflicts. Um, but again, that's another couple thousand individuals that have lost their lives in those conflicts from, from these attacks. Uh, so, Bart... You want to you want to tell us a little bit about your post 9-11 service? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So uh, I ended up um, I got offered a position to go over to a Sapper's instructor's course and I turned it down because I want to take a, I figured September 11th happened and ended up we're going to go into Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to take my Marines as a squad leader and uh, that ended up coming. It kind of fell apart. The mission did. And uh, I was a little bit dis disenfranchised, uh, I guess, at the time. And I wanted to leave the Marine Corps. I had uh, been offered a uh, school cut to go to um, col- a college, and I wanted to be a teacher. So I took the three-month school cut and 60 days leave, and I ended up leaving the Marine Corps. Um, it was a great experience. I had a lot of good times in the Marine Corps initially after my first uh four years on active duty. Um, I got home and after about two weeks, I met up with one of my friends who joined the Marine Corps Reserve in the infantry and here in Indiana. So I ended up uh, joining up with him and I didn't want him to kind of be alone, I guess. I signed him up. So kind of a couple of years. Felt responsible to him a little bit. Right. You know, he's my best friend. So John Hodgen helped me off the bus when I was five years old, you know, so Anyway, we ended up um, doing that deal, and I was going to school, and then I watched 2-1 Fox Company do the invasion there in 2003. Um, my reserve unit, they shut us down going through Turkey, and uh, so I felt like I'd kind of missed out on my wars, you know, because at the time, you had Grenada, Panama, the first Gulf War, and uh, all this stuff's happened. Operation Praying Mantis before that, you know, all this stuff happens, and uh, it's only little blips on the radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I'm thinking I missed stuff, missed out and watch my own buddies, guys that I knew well. Uh, I saw Moots, uh, Lorma, uh, Doc Ellen, you know, they're on TV and I'm I'm sitting uh, on a couch getting home from a bar, hanging out with my friends, drinking beer. And I'm just like, wow, I'm watching this on TV and it was crazy for me. So uh, I'm going to school and then I ended up getting uh we had a Christmas break in uh, 2003, and I ended up having uh, getting called up on Christmas Eve, 2003, and I was told to tell my men, I was a squad leader in the infantry, and I was told to tell my men that we were activating to go to Iraq. And we were to report into the drill center by January 5, 2004. Hmm. So I did, and I pulled my Marines together. It was a harsh times. Christmas Eve is a really hard time to notify people. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still dealing with it. You know, like at the yeah. time, I got people cussing me out, thinking it's a drunken joke or something. I don't know. Uh, 
So we ended up going into Iraq in 2004, and I got stationed at Abu Ghraib Prison. Uh, and I was there with uh, Charlie Company 1-5. Um, great, great group of dudes. They came in straight from Okinawa, and uh, we were the two Marine companies that were there. And we had the perimeter defense of the area, and then we ended up having like quick reaction force missions, some convoy security missions, and uh, training the um, ICDC, the Iraqi Civilian Defense Corps, or Civil Defense Corps. I don't know what that. They changed the Iraqi National Guard type stuff many mm-hmm. times. Uh, and then um, it was uh, some crazy times, and then we found out that after we'd been there for a little while, that the Abu Ghraib prison scandal broke where the army, because the army ran the prison and they had actually had the initial defense of the place and they knew that it was going to get hit hard, uh, probably with a bunch of uh, attacks and whatnot because of this scandal that came out about the abuse of the prisoners. So the military intelligence and the uh, army MPs, and I think we had like a light, um, or no, long range surveillance National Guard unit from Michigan. It was, uh, they were based out of there. They were running the prison system. And they had some medical stuff that was in there also, uh, like a cash site, like MASH, the TV show. But they, was, they changed it to cash, and that's what was going on in there. So anyway, uh, we were based out of there, and then um, things got really crazy in the spring. We went there, we went into Iraq, and we were like, hey, they're telling us to grow mustaches, and um, we're going to wear soft, our soft boonie covers. And we, had, we brought our green camis also to switch into when things were going to change into more of a peaceful m- mode. You know, mm-hmm. I never wore my green camis while I was there. Um, things got sideways uh, late March, early April. And when word broke about the uh, prison stuff, we were uh, attacked on the daily mm-hmm. and siege more than anything else. And then th- we got our supply lines cut. And Fallujah kicked off throughout April. Um, it was some rough times. Continued to fight through there. We went into a lull over the summer and then, uh, started, things started back up in the fall. And then we ended up, um, 3 1 Lima Company came in and they took five. We worked with them a little bit and then, uh, we left and 210, I forget which battery, they showed up. And then shortly after that, they got hit really hard. It's a whole, uh, large attack on the prison, multiple B-bids, vehicle-borne improvised devices, and uh, rocket propelled grenades. And, but they did a really great job fighting that off. And Lima Company is uh, forever going to be in uh, Marine Corps history with their time in Fallujah, the fall assault on that. 2004, I got back home. And I was still kind of in shock. I think I was taking a little bit of time off. And uh, I got told... There was a job at the nearby city in Frankfurt and uh, for the waterworks. And I'm like, oh, I don't. All right. I need a job. I don't want to go back to school now, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. anymore. So uh, I go to get a waterworks job. I take an interview and um, uh, I told the I told the superintendent that I, I don't know anything about water except how to drink it and how to shower in it. <laughs> but, you know, I was dressed for the part. Uh, clean clothes uh I, I just had khakis and a polo on and the guy that showed up after me had a uh, frayed jeans and you know he had a big dip in and a goatee down to his chest so uh i was like man i don't know if i'm gonna get this job but uh i got the gig and it was a great experience for me i learned a lot 
and uh, I, I grew up on a farm, so it was easy working with my hands and stuff. And uh, I learned some stuff in, uh, about some people that I, I wanted to be around and emulate, just like in the Marine Corps, you know. Mm-hmm. And I ended up uh, uh, learning a lot about people I don't want to be around too. And uh, I got a call to from my commanding officer. Uh, he was an I and I guy, uh, Major Randy Hoffman. And he's he's a great man. And he ended up uh, telling me, listen, we got a hard mission coming. We're going to have to augment members of our company, Kilo Company 324, to Charlie Company 124 out of Michigan. And I want you and a few, couple of these other guys to, to be leaders with these men and take them. Because I'm going to say he was sent a platoon reinforced worth of us. I agreed to it. And in 2006, started training at Camp Pendleton. There was a lot of training. It was, pretty, it was the best training I've had since probably like some of our special operations training, group training, and uh, our sapper school and some of that stuff. It was it far exceeded a lot of my training in 04. And um, we got the mission, Charlie Company. We ended up going into uh, Fallujah, the city, not the camp. It's a lot different for those of you out there that uh, might not know any better. It's about five miles away. We lived in the middle of the city, we lived in a uh, a, a civil seamock uh, is what it was called, and it was uh, I think it was like the Civil Military Operations Center or something. I don't know the acronym, but anyway, we were hit daily, and um, we uh, we we took the unit we were ripping with, relieving in place, had a couple of their guys shot and killed while I was doing that. Two weeks into it, I lost my best friend and another man that I was very close with. Um, it, it was really a rough go, and then we ended up fighting throughout the city, and we were the only company that stayed in there the whole time. Other units were just passing through the other companies, and um, I ended up losing uh, in the battalion. We lost 22 dead, uh, 241. I think it was 241 or 231 wounded, and I had 41 amputees. And it wasn't because the unit was messed up. It was actually out of my active duty and reserve time. That had been the best unit that I'd been with. And we were made mm-hmm. up of a lot of prior service active duty guys. And we had um, active duty guys that were with us. My platoon commander was actually from Fox 2-1. Um, he'd been a prior enlisted man with, I forget what company, but with 1-5. My XO was from Alpha 1-5. You know, um, I, I had good men with me, even from the East Coast. One of the guys was from 2-8. So it was, it was good to go there and have that experience level uh, going into that fight. It was a hard fight. Still dealing with some of that today. Uh, and then I ended up um, getting out of there. I became a police officer in the civilian side of things. Um, trained up for that. And then I got told that uh, we were going to pick up staff sergeant. I got told that we were going to go on another tour to Iraq. So in 2009, I go back to Iraq and I'm on the uh, Syrian and Jordanian borders, uh, out in the wastelands pretty much. And, uh, it was, it was, uh, pretty cool though. I got my own little, as a platoon sergeant, I got my own little, uh, spot to run my guys out of. And we had a little Fort Apache and I had a reinforced platoon. I had a new, uh, lieutenant. He was from 2-2. Uh, Jason Hibbler ended up going over to Force Recon. I believe he's with Marsoc now. And uh, great guy. He would put himself in the MRAPs and uh, he'd be like, hey, I'm going to be in here for a while. 
I got to practice my singing. He, uh, he was there. <laughs> Dave band songs. <laughs> For karaoke night or something? <laughs> right. Great dude. Okay. Uh, he ends up doing that number. And, uh, had, a, had a bunch of good dudes with me. Some of the guys were prior to uh, my other, uh, my other, um, deployments. Mm-hmm. And, we got word that that mission, we were the last infantry unit at the time, uh, to, to be there in Iraq. So we got word that they needed people in Afghanistan. And I ended up in 2010, uh, going to Afghanistan straight from Iraq after I'd been there for, uh, I think three, four months. Mm. I went over to Afghanistan and I initially started off training Afghan national police. And then um, was pulled and sent over to the Afghan National Army to the 215th Corps and trained up the, as a military training team, trained up the Afghan National Army. And uh, we sent people into uh, Marja, into that fight in 2010, and uh, got a lot of good work with my NATO allies. Did, most of my work was with the Brits mm-hmm. during that transition period. Made good friends with the Coldstream Guards. Came back home, ended up going over to uh, the UK, doing some training at Aldershot and uh, and in Wales at the Brecon Beacons with the uh, Brits. And came back home and decided to transition out um, of the Marine Corps. I still kind of think about that, like what my reasoning was. Active duty is different from the reserves. Uh, selected for gunnery sergeant, and I just... Uh, Reserves ticks up. It's a lot more than just one weekend out of the year or a, a month and two weeks out of the summer. Um, this global war on terror, it was taking me quite a bit of time out of my uh, every day of my life. So uh, I ended up leaving that, started working uh, back at the police department and uh, worked undercover for a couple of years doing counter narcotics work mainly. And uh, then I ended up getting pulled back to patrol because we needed personnel in uniform. Became a bomb technician. was a civilian bomb technician. Did that for six years. Uh, certified by the feds out of a Redstone Arsenal down in Huntsville, Alabama. Okay. Great experiences with that. It, I could go back to, I could go into these interviews and be like, well, I've been working on this stuff since I was 19 years old. Yeah. You know, so, uh, as a combat engineer, being familiarized, familiar with a lot of that explosive work helped a lot. And then my experiences overseas helped with incoming TTPs that were coming our way in the States. Um, then I ended up going back into undercover work and I worked, um, counter narcotics work, badger with the DEA out of Chicago. And we worked, um, Indianapolis, Lafayette, uh, Chicago, did some work in uh, Elkhart. Uh, up in northwestern Indiana, Gary, uh, East Chicago, and um, kind of just getting a little bit. Uh, I love the work. I love the men I worked with because it was very much similar to the Marine Corps, where we were uh, mission oriented. Uh, it was a brotherhood. Uh, my guys, I was very proud of. Still am proud of. Still good friends with them. Uh, I had a chance to go over and work with the Warrior Reunion Foundation. Uh, I had a, I put a reunion together in 2017 for my guys. I served with in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, the WRF uh, Warrior Reunion Foundation had offered to help me out, and I was going to do it either way, 
but they helped me out and they helped me out in a big way and I made some good friends out of it. And uh, I, I was able to use time to volunteer with them and it helped to bleed off some of the stress uh, and just dealing with poisonous people on the kind of the bad guy side um, in law enforcement, you know, and it's specifically the narcotics, prostitution, you know, people, murders, serious mm-hmm. violence, sex offenders. It just, uh, it's not good. And, but I could go be around guys that I had something in similar with. And I knew how important it was to reunite with each other and share those bonds and be with the gold star families. We might've lost track of be with some of my guys that might be missing parts and scarred and burned, you know, but we were, we had something in common. We'd been together and, uh, we chewed some of the same dirt mm-hmm. and, it felt good to be around them. So I ended up uh, volunteering with them. And then um, 2018, we won the uh, nonprofit, veteran nonprofit of the year award for the Newman Choice Award, awarded by uh, General Dunford there in the Pentagon. And uh, it's really cool. It was one of, once in a lifetime experience, like for me, it was, it was a big deal. And uh, I was just a volunteer. Uh, James Ferguson and, and Drew St. Drew St. Cyr had been with the artillery unit 312 at Kajaki Dam. And, uh, they've been turned into provisional infantry and they're the ones that started the WRF and then extended the handshake to me to come on board. Um, so while we were there, they'd offered me a job and I kept turning them down because I was, you know, hooking and jabbing still, you know, doing my, my stuff at the task force. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I decided that, you know, life, sometimes you have to take chances and I would rather know that I had tried again or something. Um, I took a chance at something I loved that loved doing and I believed in with all my heart than being comfortable with a paycheck and a pension, you know, um, at that point. So I took a chance and I hopped on board with them full time and, uh, I left law enforcement in November of 2019 and I've been working for WRF uh, ever since. And even before that, I was doing some work with them, putting on reunions for units across the country. And then COVID-19 hit and slowed all of our operations down and moved everything to 2021 almost. It'll come back. It's got to be. I want to back up to something you said before, because I think you're the first and only person I've ever spoken to who had explosives on their resume and it actually worked out for them. No, right? It's crazy. Because it never worked out for me. I'm like, I can blow stuff up and shoot guns and nobody wanted to hear it. And he's sitting in a boardroom with a suit and tie and they're like, that, yeah, we don't need that. Thanks. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, honestly, Bart, when I'm listening to, to everything that you've done, you know, you and I parted ways somewhere around probably... 2002 maybe in our in our right after 9-11 in our uh, you know marine corps capacity um and then you went on to do some pretty amazing things uh and then got out and and went into law enforcement and continued to do some pretty amazing things it sounds like you need a break (laughs) i'm i'm starting to feel it now i'm 41 and um i've had some injuries that are slowing me down quite a bit Uh, yeah we were in hawaii at the same time weren't we a couple years ago yeah, yeah, you yeah. Were on, we were, and we were just like ships crossing at sea. Yes, just yeah. randomly. I was in Hawaii for a business trip, believe it or not. I got flown out to Hawaii for work. 
Um, yeah, it really sucked. It was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. Three, four hours of work per day. And yeah. then I had the rest of the day to do nothing. Um, but yeah, I think I posted a picture maybe on Facebook and you saw it and you're like, where are you? And I was like, well, I'm right here. And you're like, well, I'm two miles down the road, which was so weird because I, I mean, what a small world, you know, but, um, one thing I want to ask you before we before we get close to our time, of course, you know, you and I discussed this prior to the call. Um, you were awarded a bronze star with a V device for valor for some actions in Iraq. Can you give us a can you give us the quick synopsis of 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 how that went down? And and for anybody listening, Bart and I talked about this prior to the podcast. I wanted to make sure that we were okay to have this conversation because um, when I heard it before from you years ago, I think when we met up in Cincinnati, you were doing some training. Uh, some law enforcement training. Um, we sat down and, you know, over a couple of beers and had a quick conversation, but I thought it was a, an amazing story. And I, I know you also ended up on a billboard in your hometown, which is, I think you're the only other person that I know on a billboard too. So can, can you, can you give us the, the high level? Can you tell our audience what, what that, what, what unfolded that day? Yeah. You know, um, first of all, I want to tell you, thank you for having me on here. I don't know if I said that earlier, Thanks for letting me share this story. Um, and I want to talk about the men that I served with because it really like all of that wraps, it, it kind of comes together for me. When I was in Hawaii, I was there with one of the men that I'm on this mission with. I'm going to talk about my, the first sergeant, uh, he'd retired there. And when I came back, this first sergeant, Troy Euclid, uh, I and I guy had helped me to transition and, uh, helped me quite a bit. Him and his wife, Estella. Um, and that's who I was visiting in Hawaii. Uh, John Hodgin, the guy I talked about joining the reserve before, he's with me in my first firefight in 2004. And that's who I was with him and his wife. And uh, we were out there visiting everybody together. And it was very, uh, very good time. Um, so 2004, um, we, we uh, fell into a kind of a mess when we took over initially. Uh, we took over 82nd Airborne. Uh, we took over a bunch of Humvees as infantry guys in the Marine Corps, and we didn't have a supply chain for these Humvees. So we were running out of like tires and stuff and, uh, parts. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a Humvee guy. One of my guys lost his helmet because he was in a turret and he was spinning around and the wind hit it and he didn't have his chin strap on. Lost his helmet. I didn't have another helmet for him. And we were detached from the battalion. Uh, so, uh, one of my guys, his father, I was in the National Guard and had, uh, he was a supply guy that was up in the Anaconda, which is Balad. Is it Balad? I think so. Uh, north of, uh, Baghdad. And he's like, well, let's link up and we're using satellite phones to get a hold of him. And, uh, we went to go pick up some parts and stuff and a helmet. And, uh, we drove up there <laughs> and, uh, we got him to meet up with his father, which I thought was really cool. And then, uh, on the way back, it was March 24th, 2004. And on the way back, um, I'm, I'm a sergeant and I'm cruising along, letting my guys do their work for this mission. It was just a resupply mission is what we we're looking at. <clears throat> and, uh, we, we came across, um, a Humvee that was parked on this four lane highway and it was parked right next to a car. And it kind of, it looked very odd. We didn't know what was going on. And I saw, uh, and our, it was only one Humvee, and I saw this Army guy get out of the Humvee, go down the back hatch of it, with one arm on the Humvee, and uh, one arm on his weapon, and just kind of mosey around the corner. And all of a sudden, uh, 
automatic rifle fire started happening and uh, hit him in the neck and uh, it almost took his head off and killed him right there. And then they started, guys piled out of the car and they were shooting through the car into the Humvee. Um, the turret gunner couldn't depress his weapon on the men. He had an M9 pistol shooting at the guys down below. And uh, he got shot in the chest. And this this happened like this. And, and next thing you know, um, I'm shooting from the Humvee. My turret gunner is trying to swing to engage because we would swing away from uh, friendly forces, the turret gunners would. So they're trying to get the turret back on targets. Uh, and uh, started picking up a few guys um, in the immediate vicinity with my rifle fire. And I'm the only guy on that side that was the last time to be. So we were picking that up. And then uh, the lead elements are still hauling ass because we were driving pretty fast at the time mm -hmm. doing that in Iraq. And uh, I saw, so I saw two guys I thought were dead. And then I didn't know who else was in that Humvee and it's all alone. So I ended up, um, the Humvee didn't stop yet. And uh, it, I had a split second decision, so I just jumped out of the Humvee. And um, I still had a Prick 119 radio piece shoved up in my helmet, and it clotheslined me. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I bailed out, I fall down, I get back up, and there's a, a Iraqi coming at me. Uh, I thought he was an Iraqi um, coming at me. And uh, it was the biggest flame coming from a weapon I'd ever seen before in my life. Uh, and he was shooting from the hip, and I was shooting at him, and um, ended up putting him down. And uh, I continued on to work the area a little bit more on a couple other guys that came after me. They were coming, they were trying to get the army guys reloaded. Um, and I got up to the Humvee, and I noticed that the the guy that had been shot in the chest had been shot in the sappy plate. Mm -hmm. He was confused. He was okay. There's another man that was there and he'd been stitched across his legs and one round had gone into his armpit. Um, so he wasn't bleeding that bad from his legs, but his armpit was a mess. And I was trying to sh stop the bleeding in the armpit and I couldn't get it to stop. I ended up shoving my fist into the hole to try to get pressure on it. And I was worried about people creeping up on us. And at the, about that time, rounds start coming up and chewing up the Humvee and car again. So this is going on for a few minutes and then uh, it stops. There's a lull. And all of a sudden, one of my guys, John Joenbeck, shows up and he'd been a combat lifesaver. So he comes in, not a true medic corpsman, you know, army medic or a Navy corpsman. But he comes in, takes over immediate care for the guy. And uh, he starts working on him. And I had a couple other guys show up and I climbed up through the Humvee and there was a 50 cal on top of the Humvee machine gun. It wasn't loaded, so I ended up loading it, and um, there's two machine guns, and one's to my left and one's to my right flank, and there's a couple, maybe a few guys that were on this ditch in front of me, and I could see up what was going on. The guys on the uh, ground level couldn't because it was a big, like, uh, they had, like uh, palm fronds, I believe, um, that were stacked like a fence, and so we couldn't see over it, but up on top of the Humvee, I could. Well, they could see me too. So these two machine guns are shooting at me. So I worked the one on the left uh, with the 50 cal and I, I knocked it out. 
and the guys there. And then I, I was trying, I knew I wouldn't be able to pick up the guys along the ditch very well, but I worked it to keep their heads down as I transversed the turret, traversed the turret. And, uh, man, something blew up right in front of me. And it was, uh, I ducked down in the turret, you know, and I come back up and, uh, all I'd hit a metal, like light post or signpost or something that was right in front of the barrel. Scared the Jesus out of me. Um, and I'm working this other, I'm working this other, um, machine gun and I'm trying to figure out why my tracers are off and I can't figure out why they look so weird. It was the, it was the tracers coming back at me. Oh, jeez. Oh, Mine doesn't, you know what I mean? And that you can hear it, it sounds like, uh, gravel getting thrown against the vehicle mm-hmm. and, um, it's chewing us up and the 50 cal goes dry. And I can't find, I can't find ammunition. Well, these had been MPs. These guys come to find out were MPs and they'd use a chain and a lock to lock their back hatch. And that's where the extra ammunition was. I didn't oh, have no. ammunition. So my guys couldn't get to this stuff. Um, and they were getting shot at trying to shoot at the lock. You know, we didn't have shotguns at the time either. So, uh, I climbed down and pulled, uh, Pulled a machine gun off of that wounded guy. He had a parasol. I'd never seen one before. It was an M249 with a shorty barrel and shorty stock on it. Mm. I laid it against the 50 cal and worked that other machine gun position and put it out. <clears throat> and then, uh, but before I could do that, literally, there's so much fire coming. I couldn't get back into that turret. And it, all it was was a little piece of metal that was in front. It was, it was uh, in front. Or behind the machine gun, I guess. I was trying to work that. And um, these big holes are getting chewed in the Humvee. And I look over, my buddy John Hodgen, he runs out into this intersection that's perpendicular to, to me, about 25, uh, 40 yards away, maybe. And uh, he's out there all alone, and he's shooting with his M16 on single fire. Pow, pow, semi-automatic, excuse me. And um, and then he throws an M24. And M203 had underneath, he threw a 40 millimeter grenade downrange. Well, he didn't elevate it. So it goes short and um, makes a big explosion. And uh, I was like, oh man, you know, but he drew fire away from me so I could get up on the machine gun turret and work that other position. John comes running around and uh, my I had a platoon commander at the time, comes running behind us yelling, RPG, you know, and and John, I look over at John, he's got his chin strap undone and he's laughing like he was and uh, reloading his grenade launcher. He's like, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember like it's crazy oh. intense and just yeah. laughing my ass off too because I love that guy, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, from my point, I could call, I could direct John on and after I think it was two or three of the 40 millimeter rounds, I got him on target where the, the, these guys had amassed uh, for this ambush. So there was a near. Uh, they were trying to work a IED to put in a improvised explosive device, and then these these guys that they had on the road in that car. And then there was a near ambush they were trying to do, and a mm-hmm. far ambush was, I think, to protect them as they retrograded. Mm-hmm. So we eliminated the near ambush, and then uh, we're working on reducing that far ambush, and uh, ended up. Eliminating the reinforcements as they arrived. John threw one of the 40 millimeter grenades, you know, and directed him to aim at uh, 
a couple of crossed like telephone poles or something, and it dropped it right in their midst, and um, they were dead. So we ended up. Um, the fight was pretty much done. Uh, I only had eight Marines with me at the time, though. Yeah, I had, it was just two vehicles. Um, so I ended up because that's what our like we didn't think that we needed more vehicles, and we didn't even have a Navy corpsman with us. We changed a lot of things. You learn rapidly at this stuff. Mm-hmm. So we ended up um, called in for medevac, uh, and I, I had one of my guys initially start calling in, Mike Naylor, um, and he uh, started that, and then I worked it a little bit, and then we had Apaches come in, and I couldn't get the Army. An Army unit kind of pulled up. A big, a big uh, convoy pulled up, and I was trying to get them to get guys out to sweep because I only had eight guys. I had a base of fire set, but I couldn't sweep the battlefield to see what was going on because I didn't want the medevac getting shot down. I'm trying to communicate with these guys was kind of difficult. Well, here comes running a pararescue uh, para guy, uh, Air Force DJ, and he comes up to us and starts tending to the wound and saves the guy that got stitched across the legs in his armpit. My guy did a really good job. John did. John Jonebet, um, throws his legs on top of the dead soldier so that blood would pool into his body cavity and probably saved his life, Gets the uh, stops the bleed in the armpit, tourniquets the leg, stabilizes the man. And then um, I, I noticed we can't find the guy that had been in the turret. I can't find him. And I think that he's been, I'm getting ready to frag the um, fence line I don't know what's on the other side of it before I send guys over there to check it. Well, I can't do it because now I don't, I, I think that he might have been drug off into the weeds. So, uh, we're trying to work this, and about that time, the medevac lands and, um, got them in and, uh, we loaded up the wounded guy. And here comes running this other army guy without a shirt on, and he jumps on the Blackhawk. And, uh, he'd been, he'd linked up with these other army guys down the road about 100 yards and then um and this other convoy that showed up and we ended up um trying to load the, the dead soldier and they wouldn't take him because he was dead so we had to offload him and um you know that was kind of hard and then uh we put him in with the other army guys the medevac left and um you know, there's sad stuff that happens. You don't know why it happens. Um, during this time or right right after it, um, it's just lack of communication, fog of war, uh, but it's sad stuff. And uh, it's it's hard to take. Uh, I saw a pregnant woman get up and run across one of the dirt roads. And uh, um, one of the other elements, not, not my guys, uh, opened up on her. I don't know why, you know, and that, that was kind of hard uh, to take. And uh, she was dead. It was obvious she was dead. You know, it was, it sucked. But, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of stuff that happened that day. It was crazy. And then, uh, we policed the battlefield. Chad Gibson was there with me. Um, he was trying to get a grenade off on us. And, uh, he took him out and we were within probably five feet of the guy. It was, uh, it was, it was a lot of craziness going on. Retrieved uh, explosives, machine guns, uh, rifles. Guys had Syrian passports. 
And this is all in an area that I'm not familiar with. And it's not my operations. Um, we're stacking all the stuff up. I, I took all, I had to give back the weapons that I took. The, my, my commanding officer made me give them back to uh, the army because I took their stuff. So I, I didn't want to leave it, you know? Mm. And then um, I think one of the most, it sticks in your head, you know, like I have a lot of respect for my army brothers. I, I seriously, like I've worked around some phenomenal guys and as a Marine, you kind of give the army crap all the time or inner service forever. But I've seen some phenomenal army men and uh, I've served with them. I've fought alongside them. This major comes up and he looks at uh, the enemy dead laying around and he looks at these machine gun positions on fire. He looks at the Humvee chewed up, the vehicles all chewed up, and all the brass and, and stuff laying around. And he kind of looks at us because we're, we're still hyped up and we're getting ready to leave, though. And he's like, thank God the Marines were here today. And I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Rick yeah. Brown, ooh, you know. Um, and we go back. And, um, uh, that began a very hard time in the Marine Corps for me. Um, and the men did a tr tremendous job. Um, Quebec song. He did a great job up in the turret. Um, Mike Naylor did driver John Joan Beck. Um, I, I had a lot of good men with me that day. And I'm from John Hodgen dismounted, uh, Captain Griffin. Out of Virginia, I mean, a lot of good men, and I'm lucky to have been with them. Uh, I never really thought that, like, award-wise, I'd ever get something like that. And I, the thing is, is um, I saw Marines do stuff like that. It's just you're doing your job, mm -hmm. just out there. You want to get in a fight, and I think that a lot of other people would have done something, maybe not the same thing, but something similar. And they probably could have done it better. And it just happened to be that I was there and I, you, you just got to do something sometimes, you know? Well, I know it's, uh, I know it's not easy to share. I know that some of these stories probably aren't easy to recall. I do appreciate you, you know, going through this and, and talking to us about it. And, and I think that probably anybody listening would agree. And, and I share this sentiment that it's heroic, heroics. You guys are, are heroes in my mind. Uh, I've always thought so. Um, of course, I thought you were a hero before any of this back when, uh, I was just a young devil dog coming in, not knowing, you know, how to tie my boots. And uh, you guys were showing me the way. But uh, I mean, honestly, I'm I'm proud to know people like you. I'm proud to know. Uh, I'm proud to call you my friend. I'm proud to have served with you. Um, and 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 I think the other piece is that the, this is a testament to the value of a team. Um, you know, this is the kind of stuff like you got the right people. You just said something that kind of sticks with me here that maybe somebody could do it better or, or whatever. Uh, but something has to be done. Uh, I kind of carry that. I kind of carry that motto with me in my professional life. And, and that is that I, I'm sure there is somebody else that would do my job differently from what I was doing. Maybe they could do it better, but I go forth and I execute the best way I know how with the people and the resources that I have. Um, and, and honestly, Bart, there's no way to say that it could have ended up any different. You know what I mean? Like it's uh, the the fate was there that day. You know what I mean? Like that's the way it unfolded and that's the way it unfolded. And I am sure that uh, um, 
I'm sure that there are a handful of people that are are glad that you were there. And and I mean, who knows who else could have rolled up on that scene and maybe not have taken the action. So I don't know. It's uh, I think it's an amazing story. I think it's a great. I think it's a great testament to your character and the character of of your other men that you served with. And and I think it's a, I think it's an awesome story to tell. Yeah. Yeah, Bart. um, That's the first time I've heard this story. Uh, Matt said earlier, you know, years back, he he got to kind of hear this a little bit, but that is an absolute amazing story. Um, And the fact that you still remember all these guys that were there with you and that you're giving them the credit to it's it's uh, I'm, I'm a big sports guy any any big team captain or anything um yeah they might get the praise they might get that post-game interview kind of like what you're getting right now but the good ones always give the credit to to the teammates to the ones that help because if it wasn't for uh, you know those other people uh you know your your buddy that ran down 25 40 yards away and was drawing fire in his direction to allow you the opportunity to swing your turret around to get fixated on that second machine gun, you know, uh, without somebody willing to do that and take their, you know, take that chance and risk their life. Um, you know, God only knows if you would have ever had the opportunity to get that turret swung around properly. So, um, you know, that that's, I think that's awesome that you're, you know, you have that, wherewithal and and the uh the ability to to not just try to soak the credit up and and give the credit to others involved and uh yeah i want to thank you very much for sharing the story thank you very much for for coming on the podcast and my last thought uh for a september 11th podcast is i wanted to talk about the weeks and months that followed um i think it's it's terrible that a tragedy like a september 11th had to happen for America to really come together. We saw, we saw people, communities, uh, you know, both sides of the political spectrum coming together for the first time in a long time and truly working together, you know, with just blind love and compassion and care for one another. And, uh, obviously we all, we all know what's going on, um, in the world today in this country. And, uh, hopefully it doesn't take another September 11th for things to get back to that way. Cause I, I think that if we could find a way to live as a country uh, more along those lines, uh, it, it'd be amazing for everybody. So uh. there was a, there was a famous picture that, that came out right there after nine 11, but it was the, uh, the firefighter sitting down, sweaty, beaten, dirty, handing the flag off to the, the U S servicemen. And it said, I'll, he said, I'll take it from here. And I remember that one, uh, how everything sort of evolved into uh, George Bush said it that day. I hear you. America hears you. And soon the people that knock these these uh, towers down will hear you, too. Um, America rose their fists in the air and said, let's go do it. Bart, you're going to say something. I just want to show you something. Um, so, Dish, I don't even know if you know this about me. This is the flag that I carried in my pack when we were uh, overseas and I carried this flag with me um, through three to three to Iraq and one to Afghanistan eventually. But I remember when we first came back and you couldn't find flags mm-hmm. bottom up. And we, we, we got back a few weeks later or a couple weeks. I can't remember a few days later, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. A few days. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, 
and ended up just a feeling of love and compassion for your fellow man. And um, I'm not a born patriot. Uh, some of these things you learn, and uh, I'm very proud of our country and uh, proud of how we love each other. And I really hope that we come back to that because uh, I think we owe it to our future generations to show love and compassion and hard work uh, pays off. And uh, we need to take care of each other because all this evil that's out there right now, um, there's nothing good that'll ever come of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know what else to say necessarily to make a point. That's still going to sound super smart. But um, if you can get that and tap into that, that feeling, and uh, it makes me have a new respect for the flag and, and how much it means to try to stay together as a unified nation and unified country. Mm -hmm. Love on your family. Listen to some Alan Jackson songs. I don't know. <laughs> he's He's got a 9-11 song. Um, Live in the moment, you know. Right. So, Bart, uh, just wanted to give you a moment here. Um, you know, you said most of your um, reunions that you've been working on have gotten pushed back. But do you want to talk about a little bit of the um, what you do now and, and that organization? And uh, we'll get out of here. 100%. Hey, thank you for giving me that chance. Um, no problem at all. I'm with Warrior Reunion Foundation. Warrior Reunion Foundation. And you can look us up online. We're on Facebook. And we uh, provide reunions for units that served in combat together. Um, you don't have to be an infantry guy. You don't have to be in the Marine Corps. We do this for anybody that served in combat together. We've done one for 1st Medical Battalion. Where we pulled in um, motor tr transport guys and gals that were, um, we had Navy corpsmen that were with them. Um, and we've, uh, we do this around the country. And we try to reunite uh, each other because and to reforge those bonds because sometimes one of the most um, harsh things you can do to somebody is to uh, ostracize them or push them off. Um, and, and, and we need to build our tribes back up and we're trying to prevent, you know, veteran isolation because it's deadly. Mm -hmm. And we really want to reunite units and the Gold Star families and build that family unit back again. And, we try to jumpstart that so they can start doing this for, on the, their own. These units can do it on their own in the future. We will support them in the future is our, what our plans are. Uh, we've had a lot of really good luck with uh, the Gary Sinise Foundation. I got um, talked to Chris Pronto with 14th Hour. He's helped us. And um, we've had uh, a lot of really um, good people help us along the way. And we're going to try to continue to do that. We've had reunions uh, along the West Coast, East Coast, um, Texas, Indiana, Michigan, you name it. And we're going to continue to do this. We've got momentum going into 2021 that we're not going to let up on. Right now, I'm doing uh, small unit meals for units that we've had to push off. So we're asking them to get together and we'll pay for just one night uh, of uh, meal and drinks. Get together the people you can get together um, and just reunite together in a little way we're going to get you later on you know what i'm saying uh if, if you're in our pipeline uh, reunions we're doing um zoom calls um we did one with the uh, charlie company second of the 508 and uh they had guys called 39 guys called in from across the country oh, wow and also we had a gold star family member calling from uh, mexico and we had europe and uh, even afghanistan guys called that's awesome that's awesome and uh, you mentioned there, there are bonds 
that are made while serving that uh, it's indescribable the bonds you, you get with some of these people and then especially like you're doing these for units that were in combat together so those bonds are just stronger than steel so uh you know having these guys that got out and thought man i'll never see some of these guys again in my life having these opportunities uh, gets to take them back to a time they really felt alive you know so anybody for anybody watching you can see the the link is, is there warrior reunion foundation.org anybody who's listening it is yeah it's www.warriorreunionfoundation.org absolutely amazing so bart uh once again thank you so so much for coming on uh sharing your stories with us um you know absolutely amazing thank you so much for your service in the military uh as a police officer and now with the Warrior Reunion Foundation. You're doing amazing work. Uh, nothing but the best of luck going forward. And uh, we hope to hear from you again soon. So for everybody here at Veteran Beyond the Wire podcast, thank you so much for checking us out. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you, gentlemen. See you guys. See you, Bart. <laughs>